Welcome to the Decade of 2020 podcast. Join me in my effort as I relentlessly focus on how the next 10 years will affect the middle class in the Western economies. Forewarned is forearmed, they say. We will speak with the subject matter experts about the intersection of finance, geopolitics, and history in order to connect the timeless with the immediate. Today's guest on the podcast is Guillaume Pitron. He holds a postgraduate degree in law from Paris Universities and a master in international law from the University of Georgetown in Washington, D.C. After working as a lawyer for a few years, he transitioned to working as a journalist for reputed publications like La Monda and National Geographic. He went on to direct several documentaries related to the exploitation that occurs during the extraction of raw materials, in particular, Boomerang, the dark side of the chocolate bar, Rarer, the Dirty War, and The Dark Side of Green Energies. He's the author of the book, The Rare Metals War, The Dark Side of the Energy Transition and Digitization, which won the 2018 Economy Book Prize and the 2019 Turgo Prize for the Best Financial Economics Book of Year 2018. We will be speaking with him about his journey and the same book, which was translated recently and made available in North America. Yours is a long and storied bio first as a lawyer, then as a journalist, as a documentary filmmaker, and as an author. What made you pursue journalism, given your entire education has been focused on law? And I mean, it, it would have been a, a very, very profitable career if you had chosen law. But why did you feel like becoming a fair arbiter of the truth? And was it your true calling? Well, I, I was studying my law studies, my passing my law degrees, but at the same time, I just was dreaming about becoming a reporter. And uh, in my view, I thought it would be much more exciting to live as a reporter on the field and to be traveling abroad than just, you know, being in a in an air-conditioned uh, office um, during my days. And so I preferred to uh, step away from uh, a corporate career. I would probably have uh, earned much more money. <laughs> But uh, I wanted to, to do what I'm passionate about. And that uh, took me to dozens of countries for the last 12 years. And um, I've lived exciting things. And that also has led me to get an interest in raw materials and their geopolitical issues. So here I am. For the benefit of our listeners, can you break down which all places has your work taken you in the past 10 years? And if there's an interesting incident or anecdote that happened along the way in your journey that you would like to share with our listeners. Mm -hmm. Well, you'd be happy to know that my first international report was in India, actually, in the north of India, in Punjab. So um, that's one of the countries where I've been, but I've been in uh, 40 countries. Uh, it took me in every continent, and it also uh, took me, in, especially in Africa, and I've been to every part of Africa. Uh, actually, I have some uh, good and bad souvenirs from this report, mostly good souvenirs, um, souvenirs of, uh, you know, this uh, the power of nature and natural environments in the middle of the Sahel or in the middle of the uh, jungle uh, in, in Africa, but also in, in Asia. I also had uh, bad souvenirs. It happens. It happens that I've been involved in, uh, you know, military situations against my will in, in Sudan, I remember, with uh, tar, tough and dangerous conditions for, for my security. I was put in jail in Zimbabwe once because I didn't have my visa as a reporter, but eventually they let me out after 48 hours. And uh, I also had a lot of stories in China because China is a difficult country where to be a reporter. And, uh, you know, whatever you do over there, obviously you, you can get into trouble with police, with any kind of secrets, 
strange stuff that happens over there. So that has been difficult also. But, uh, you know, being a journalist, being a reporter is such a wonderful life. What's the reason behind um, your deep interest in, in raw materials? I mean, there, there is a thread to, to all of the work that you've, you've done, and it's mostly centered around the, the extraction of raw materials and its, uh, mm-hmm. its plantation, harvestation, all of that. It's difficult to get people interested in what's happening outside of their borders. It's always better to, to speak about France to the French public, to speak about the United States to the U.S. public. That's my experience as a journalist. So if you want to get them interested in something that happens very far away, you've got to tell them that it has a direct relationship with them. And a commodity always has a direct relationship to you, wherever is this commodity. Because if this gum arabic from Sudan happens to end up in your Coca-Cola, or if a rare metal which is being mined in China happens to end up in your mobile phone, well, that is a faraway news which becomes a very close topic to you. So that's my way to get people interested in something that happens far away from them, is to talk to them about commodities that have a direct impact on their everyday life. And this is how I've been interested in commodities for the last 12 years, and especially on the risks on, on, on these rare metals, which is the subject of our discussion. Before we jump into the rare earth elements, let me get one question in. You've been writing for some time. What was the motivation behind also directing documentaries? Was it that you wanted a, a bigger platform and a, and a wider audience to showcase your work? Or was it the, the limitations of the writing medium that you wanted to overcome in making sure that the, the story gets told in a, in, a, in a much more larger canvas, so, so as to say? No, you're right. Uh, actually, uh, you know, when you work for the TV, you obviously have a very large platform of uh, viewers for uh, what you do. Uh, Much more people view a film than they read a book. So if you want to touch the largest possible public, uh, you've got to work for such a medium. Also, such a medium is much better financed, much better funded. You get much more money for making a worldwide investigation when you work for the TV than if you work for an editor. Uh, you can get thousands of uh, euros or dollars of fundings for uh, actually doing a worldwide investigation that will take you in 10 countries for a 90-minute show on French TV or on Al Jazeera, which I've done. So uh, that's the reason why also you can just get uh, a better life as a reporter. That's also a difficult uh, you know, job to be a journalist, uh, a documentary maker. It's difficult to film. It's difficult to make a story on TV. It's much harder than actually to write a book, to be honest. So I do this sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes. It does sound really exciting. So let's let's get into the book now. The book is titled sure. The Rare Metals War, The Dark Side of the Energy Transition and Digitization. It was released in 2018, and I believe it was successful in, in Europe. Now you've translated it and made it available in North America. Let's Let's begin from the basics. What are rare earth elements? How rare? Are they really in comparison to, say, for example, iron, which is the most widely available element uh, in in nature? Actually, um, in the nature, uh, you've got what we call base metals, which also are called abundant metals, such as iron, copper, aluminium. These are the metals that we are most uh, mostly aware of. And in the mine, you've also got what we call rare metals. Uh, they are called rare because they are much more rare than these base metals. And to give you an example, there is a rare metal with them is neodymium. And this neodymium 
is 1,000 times more rare in a mine than the iron. So if you get one kg of pure iron out of mine, you'll get around one gram of this neodymium, which is a rare metal. So, you know, that gives you an explanation of how rare such metal can be. But you can get all these rare metals everywhere on Earth. You can extract them uh, in India. You can get some of them in Africa, South America, uh, in the oceans, uh, and also on asteroids. So they're not very rare. <laughs> uh, you know, they are rare and not rare at the same time. But let me tell you, they are very strategic, extremely strategic, because they are so much needed for our new technologies. These rare metals, there are about 30 of them, and they are called cobalt, tungsten, antimony, rare earth, or indium. So in a way, these rare metals are rare and not rare at the same time. So for those of us who may not know, which are the top seven rare earth elements? Where do we find them, more importantly, in our daily lives? Actually, um, as I tried to explain, uh, rare earths is a specific class of rare metals, and these rare earths are being divided into uh, 15 metals. And the most important of these 15 metals, because of their strategic importance, are, for example, neodymium, because you get some neodymium in your phone. Your phone wouldn't vibrate if there was no, uh, not a little uh, uh, magnet, which is made of neodymium. But praseodymium also is a very important rare earth because of its strategic applications for other magnets. Usually the most important of these rare earths are used uh, for making motors, electric motors for electric vehicles or for wind turbines. So this is the use which is made of them. And then you've got also other rare metals such as cobalt or tungsten, which are very strategic and I would point pinpoint these specific metals, give her the importance, for example, in electricity storage for, you know, making electric batteries work and giving them their autonomy. When we say the rare earths elements war or the rare metals war, do you in, do you mean to say that there, there will be a physical war or there will be like a corporate battle over these resources? Because every sovereign nation in the world is trying to are trying to get a hold of these resources because their populations are hungry for for the green energy yeah it's quite fair niraj um, if i want to say it a bit differently we are undergoing a green energy transition and the very idea with this energy transition is that we got to get away from oil turn the back to coal and we get to move to green technologies such as solar panels wind turbines and electric vehicles but most people believe that these technologies just come out of thin air, but actually they don't. They need to be built and manufactured, and we need to mine everywhere in the world to get these rare metals for these technologies. The thing is, where are we going to get these minerals? Who's going to mine them for the rest of the world? Who's going to hold the major sources of rare metals and get a technological advance to the rest of the world? And this is where it becomes a war, but I mean an economic war, because the country which is able actually to hold most of these resources, will have a leading advantage to the other countries in, in this green energy transition. And that is already creating commercial tensions. And this is what I call a war. This is a commercial war, an economic war. Could it become a physical war? That's a good question. Hopefully not. And today we're not going to war to secure cobalt or tungsten or rare earths and maybe lithium. 
uh, lithium, which is a critical metal, uh, according to the United States Geological Survey. So we're not going to war, physically speaking, but who knows what could happen? I mean, we went to war during the 20th, 20th century for securing all access, which was extremely strategic. And these resources, these new rare resources, are becoming strategic. So I hope we'll be wise enough to conduct a green transition, a green uh, climate transition, which is not going to, uh, you know, um, uh, motivate armies to actually secure such resources. So for now, there is no war, and hopefully tensions will not be such that uh, such a thing would be a possibility. Nobody knows yet. Uh, in the book, you bring up a very fascinating point, which was the fact that the United States dominated the rare earth production. And, and you categorically mentioned that it didn't have a monopoly, but it did dominate in the, in the 1980s. Can you touch upon what happened thereafter? And uh, especially your experience with a company called Molycorp. Yeah, you're right. The United States were actually producing most of the rare earths, which is once again one of the, one of the most strategic class of rare metals for the energy transition, but also for digitalization. And the production was happening in California, but the production was very um, polluting. And for due to environmental uh, regulations happening in the 80s, Molycorp was asked to actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, increase its its quality of production and that would come at a cost and this cost was made it not possible for Molycorp to compete with Chinese costs and at the time China was also producing these rare earth metals but uh, in social according to social and environmental regulations which has nothing to do with western regulations so they could produce at a lesser cost and at some point market had a final say and the consumers and industrials would just turn to the Chinese because the rare metals were less expensive than the than in China than in the United States. And Molycorp actually ended up its production. So we ended up just you know letting the Chinese producing up to 95% of these rare earths because we just just didn't want to have the dirt associated with these metals. I found that whole episode interesting where. Molycorp did not allow you access to their uh, to their facility, and then you actually sent them an email telling that I'm renting a plane and I'll be doing a survey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were that you know is- they were making fun of me in a way. I mean they were they were not answering to me. It was you know it was such a long time. It had been such a long time since I had been trying to get an interview or whatever. And I was a bit uh, on edge, you know, so I, I replied in this way, saying, hey, guys, you don't want me on the field, but I just be in the air, check out the air, because at this time, <laughs> you'll see a plane and it'll be with my camera on the top. Actually, it was much of a better idea to be from the from the sky to look at the at the at the at the mine. It was much more impressive and much more rewarding for my job as a journalist. So thank you, Monicorp. <laughs> the book is full of such stories uh, uh, with courage and the guts that you have kind of displayed over the past 10 years in bringing the truth to the to the people. I deeply urge the readers. I mean, I urge the listeners of this show, pick up the book. Uh, it's on Amazon. There's such episodes that that will blow your mind. When we speak about the, the US-China trade war, Circling back from 1980 to to the present day in 2020, China is by far the not only the dominant operator of rare earths, but it's also the almost the monopoly 
in in terms of the price controls that that um, are shipped to the its factories in uh, in China and in South Korea and Taiwan how do you how do you view it from the framework of a rare metals war I, I know you said that there won't be any physical war but how do you see these two great powers but heads what could be a solution so that they don't enter into physical war i think the rare earths and rare metals is a good observation point for understanding what's happening in this trade war today between the united states and china mm-hmm. china for decades was the producer of low price commodities for the rest of the world they were doing shitty jobs uh, earning very few money for the rest of the world to get non-expensive products to the Chinese and get rich with these non-expensive products. And at some point, China said, you know, my environment has been completely devastated for producing rare earths. At some point, so at some point, China said, you know, I have devastated my environment to produce these rare metals for the rest of the world. But at least what I'd like to do is to move up the value chain, not only produce metals, but I want to produce Magnets, I don't only want to produce magnets, but I want to produce semi-finished products and actually semi-finished products such as electric cars, wind turbines, solar panels. And what's the point here? The point is that if I sell a finished product, I'll get much more money and much more uh, growth, uh, GDP growth, than if I just sell uh, non-valuable products and non-valuable minerals and metals. And that explains, that is one of the explanations why China got so rich in 30 years, why China was so successful, because China is not only a farmer country or an industrial country, China is also a high-tech producing country in the world. And that explains the re-equilibrium of commercial balance between China and the rest of the world. And this is where comes Trump. Trump says, that is not acceptable. We're losing so much money in these commercial ex- trade exchanges. And I want to fight that. But he wants to fight that because of what I've explained before. China successfully leading a strategy for 30 years of moving up the value chain, keeping the metals, the rare metals for its own production, for its own needs, and selling not only the rare metals for the rest of the world, but selling the finished products with the rare metals inside. That's what I try to explain in my book. So now the question, will it become physical? No one knows about it. It is 2016 and you are on the road to a rare metal mine in China. This place is about 700 kilometers south of Beijing. First and foremost, what motivated you to go there? And what happened when you got there? Yeah, that is the beginning of the book. And uh, we are uh, four years ago and I am in the, <clears throat> the province of uh, Jiangxi, which is south of Beijing, actually, uh, south of China. And this is a fascinating place because this is one of the two biggest rare rare earth producing place in the world. It's a beautiful environment, but you've got mines uh, hidden behind the mountains. Usually it's an illegal traffic happening over there. It's very hard to get to approach these mining areas and the refining areas. And uh, I try I, as a journalist, to see, literally see what I'm talking about. So I was there because I wanted to tell my reader, listen, uh, this is just not a theoretical story that I'm writing from my desk. As a reporter, I want to see what I'm talking about. And I want to travel to as many places as possible in order actually to combine analysis with facts from the ground. So I made a point of honor 
to travel to this area, which was quite dangerous, actually, because you never know what kind of mafia you can end up face to face with. But I made a point of honor to be on the field, to travel over there, to take some risks in order to be able to report some facts from the ground. And once again, that's evaluated from journalism to see what you're talking about. Do you mind briefly touching upon when you say that China became the went from not just producing uh, rare earth uh, elements, the raw material, but it also tried to go up the value chain in producing magnets first and then then forward vertically upward integrating into producing the final finished product. We bring up in the book uh, the fact that there has been industrial espionage that has been carried out by China in countries like the United States, Germany, France, all of the all of their research has been siphoned into um, into the state owned enterprises by the Chinese PLA, say the patents from the West and, and implementing and employing those patents uh, into into their industry. Obviously, Niraj, there is a fact that uh, we have uh, lots of uh, arguments with China because we consider in the West that China doesn't respect a lot of rules from the WTO. And that part of uh, these actions by China also consists in some different levels of espionage, as you said, even if I cannot get into details precisely. But if I can explain to you, uh, having the rare metals has meant for the last decades for China, Beijing was able to say to the Western producers, of high technological end products. I won't sell you my metals, those you need for actually having your companies and your manufacturers running. I won't sell these metals to you. I will retain them on my territory unless you come to my territory and you relocate your industries in China. And if you do so, you'll have an unlimited access to my rare metals. So so that was a deal. I get you the products and you get me your technologies. Because the moment an industrial comes in China for many reasons, can be for accessing the internal market, which is used for having a low, uh, good qualified, but low paid, uh, low paid uh, human force, or also for having access to the rare metals. The moment an industrials in the West or in Japan does that, he has to sign or he had to sign until recently a joint venture, which was owned by 51% by Chinese interests. And the Chinese start to learn a lot from the industrials from Western Europe or Western world coming to settle in China. They don't necessarily spy, but they say they learn. And they learn a lot how to do these technologies themselves. And once they get to a point where they can reproduce these technologies, this is where they actually would come up with a patent, uh, which is, you know, their patent, but very much inspired from Western Western um, know-how. And they would say, that is my patent. That is a Chinese patent. And you will end up with actually Chinese products as good as Western products and sometimes even better than Western products. So this has been the way for China for the last decades to actually learn from the Western world and to be able to surpass to make better than the Western world in some segments of green technologies and even electronic products. Peter Zaihan brings up a fascinating point saying that France as a as a superpower uh, in Europe, it has been neglected for mo- most of the last century, uh, the past 50 years at least. But now demographically, 
on the energy side, France is, is likely to see a resurgence. And in, in your chapter uh, number nine, titled The Last of the Backwaters, you give us an idea why France is a sleeping giant, especially when it comes to mining and not mining just in general, but rare metals in particular. Can you elaborate in detail? What you mean when, when you say that France is a sleeping giant and what would cause it to awaken? Number one. And number two, uh, you in the further into that chapter, you say you have to reopen the mines in the Western economies like France in order, order for us to avoid the use of uh, cheap labor or slave labor, as I may call, I, I like to call it. And, and the environmental damage that is inflicted in countries such as China and, and Congo. Um, actually, turning green means we're going to have to dig deeper. People need to understand that. The people who listen to us need to understand that the green technologies are not green. They are not clean. They are not uh, sustainable because it will need more of these resources, rare resources, and even base metals for uh, coming uh, for for or for making this dream come true, this green dream come true. So where are we going to get these minerals? Now we are very much dependent upon Chinese supplies. And the question is, how can we escape from this uh, Chinese bottleneck? Are we going to s uh, secure supplies uh, from um, uh, other third parties countries, such as uh, the Republic, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, or from Bolivia, from Australia, from India also, because India, as you may know, has, has rare earth uh, deposits. Or at some point, are we going to secure these resources by just extracting them from our own soil? Why would we not look at what we have in our countries before looking at other countries? Why would we secure these strategic supplies with locally uh, available resources. And that brings a very potentially uh, uh, provocative debate because, you know, it means that if you want to turn green, you're going to have to make your own soil dirty, which we don't want. We in the Western world, even in the United States. But I think this is a fair question to be asked. And the fair question to be asked is, what do we have? Which kind of uh, uh, deposits do we have? What are the potential uh, of such a mine? And if we look at uh, what the, the United States have or what does Canada have or what does France have as a mining potential, we realize it's huge. And we realize that we could certainly mine a lot of lithium, cobalt, tungsten, rare earths, indium, germany, antimony, all of these rare metals which are necessary for a green world. And that is true with France because also France has a large uh, sea territory, uh, our special economic zone in the oceans is absolutely huge, but it's also true for other countries such as the United States. And we could certainly become mining giants, and that would certainly also bring uh, economic growth, prosperity, that will also bring a lot of dirt, but we have to, to, to assume at some point to accept that the green technologies come with dirt. But I believe this is idea in this idea of saying, Let's not stay in this position where we are, where we are so much dependent on Chinese supplies. Let's diversify our supplies and let's look at what we have and let's rediscover that we are potential mining giants, even in the West. People have forgotten that, but once they look at the figures, they realize that it's very true. I found the book's approach a very, very balanced approach because at one side you say that 
uh, countries like France and the United States and Canada need to start becoming mining giants and necessitate their own needs in the form that they don't employ and make make the environments of other countries dirtier. But in that very chapter, you mentioned what are the real difficulties on the ground of getting these mines to reopen in some cases uh, in countries like France and, and Canada, where there is a strong counter movement from associations like Greenpeace and, and, and the sorts. How does the government act in, in such a situation? Yeah, as you said, you know, it's, it's unacceptable for Western citizens to bear the environmental costs of going green. And people don't want to make a link between having to run their electric car, pretending they're clean and that they're careful about future generations, and at the same time having to let mining companies mine somewhere on their own territory. And this is where our situation becomes paradoxical and not acceptable. We in the West and especially in France, it's because we want everything that is good about green, but we just don't want to do the dirt of green. And we just want to let other countries, especially poor countries, developing countries, let the dirty jobs being done. And um, at some point, what are we responsible for if we pretend to make a green, sustainable, responsible uh, transition? And people today in France, especially in France, but this is certainly true about other countries in Europe and in the United States, do want to hear about a new mining era where we will extract these resources because they're afraid about pollution. And green uh, NGOs are very much on the forefront of such a battle. But by the way, Niraj, these green NGOs are the same who have advocated for decades for a greener world. So they're the one fighting today against the very consequences of the world they have wanted to create. And this is something, this is a contradiction that needs to be addressed. Governments, well, you know, I think they want it. My government in France is kind of okay with the fact of opening mines. And that's probably true also with the United States. But the question is, what kind of political risk do you want to take? Uh, do you want to be reelected in 2022 for the next French presidential elections? Obviously, my mm-hmm. president wants. So I don't think it would take any risk, any political risk to actually spark such debate in France, especially in those days where there are so many tensions saying, hmm, we're going to open a tungsten mine because that's necessary for a green world. People will not be able to understand that. And I think at some point we should recognize that. Politicians do the good job on this specific case. If they could, they would actually push push for such a strategy, such a policy. They would see the world responsibly. But we, the citizens, are just too contradictory too hypocritical, sorry to say it, too egoist to accept that. There are some really good and counterintuitive points in the book. Like you mentioned, green energies are not necessarily clean sources of energy. Uh, For instance, where you say that making a solar panel actually causes uh, carbon dioxide emission of 70 kilograms. But everything that we hear in the media is being sold to us in the form of green energy being net zero carbon. Is it just full of fluff? And is, it, is this the dark side of green energies that most, don't, most people don't know about and the media doesn't like to speak about? How has your journey been in battling this narrative? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting question. Going green is a message that uh, you know, makes everyone happy. Uh, 
It makes uh, industrials happy because they need to, uh, you know, grow grow bigger. It makes uh, policymakers happy because they need to have new technologies to offer to uh, citizens in order to be reelected for this for the next elections. It also makes NGOs happy because they want a greener world. So when you've got politicians, NGOs, plus uh, industry, hand in hand, the three of them together, claiming that the world is becoming greener. When you're a journalist, it's very hard to actually go beyond this message. And you've got to work hard to actually find out the real truth behind it. To be honest, uh, most of the media just don't have time to look into this. Just don't have time. They lack money. Uh, they don't want to investigate. Investigation costs a lot of money. Uh, flying over Molycorp mine costs money. And maybe also they're just, uh, you know, not willing to work a bit harder to find the real truth. And we come up with a ready-made idea that everyone has accepted, is taking for granted, what actually there is nothing more false than saying that the greener world awaiting us would be a sustainable world. My book was published in France three years ago. And very honestly, Niraj, I was so afraid when I just went had my book out in the shelves because I was just like, mm-hmm. I'm going to be killed by the ecologists. Actually, I was <laughs> killed by the ecologists. <laughs> Don't get me wrong about this. But the very interesting thing is that the media loved it. And it happened yeah. to be such a huge success in France, my book. And this yeah. is also why it's getting published in the United States. It's because people were absolutely fascinated by the story and by the argumentation that I've brought. And they could hardly counter it. They would have to say that's very true. And uh, so on one hand, I could have been deceptive about the work of the media in not being able to find out the dirt behind the green. On the other yeah. side, I must say that my uh, profession has been quite amazing in actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, conveying the message of my book through various TV shows, radio shows, podcasts, and other print uh, uh, criticism of my book. So, and good criticism. So, um, but once again, today the media has never been so powerful, but journalists never have been so poor. And uh, when you're poor, because there is a very, uh, uh, you know, not um, very weak uh, economic uh, sustainability in my job for journalists, you don't uh, go very far because you just don't have time. That doesn't mean you cannot write interesting stories. That doesn't mean that you can write interesting documentaries and film interesting documentaries. But in order to get such a book done, it's years of work. And I wasn't funded for that. So, yeah, it's uh, it's not conventional work. The one thing that you bring up at the very end of the book is the new space race or the space mm-hmm. arms race, uh, like mm-hmm. um, like most have called it. This was kickstarted by the Obama administration and has been further amplified by the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. This has fired up old allies like Japan, France, adversaries like Russia and Iran, and brought new competition in like India and China and even the UAE. This race relies a lot on rare metals. Can you elaborate? Yeah, actually, um, what we discover is that, as we said at the beginning of this podcast, (laughs) rare metals are not rare. We can get such metals everywhere on Earth and even outside of the Earth, because we know that in the moon, on the moon or on asteroids, you got a lot of these resources that just need to be wait for being extracted. And, uh, you know, you've got today a new 
interest for space. And this interest uh, is being, uh, you know, uh, stems from public action and also private group actions. So that's what we call the new space. New private groups figure out a way to make money out of space exploration. And if this economic business model does exist, then they're going to be able to send to 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 bring more activities in space how do you make money in space well you send tourists uh, in a space hotel uh, you can also offer services for uh, you know launching a satellite uh, around the, the the globe and you can also figure out a way to get metals out of these asteroids to maybe bring them back on Earth and to sell them for expensive price. And let's be honest, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It maybe, you know what, it's never going to happen at all. Because I don't even know when we're going to be able to bring back a, you know, a piece of whatever kind of rare metals from an asteroid down to Earth. But the, the very idea here is to see that the, the United States, among other countries, are preparing legally the ground for making it possible legally speaking, for a private group to go and mine out of the earth, in the space. And you don't have to mine in the earth or out of the earth because the asteroid actually belongs to everyone, according to a 1967 uh, treaty. But the United States did this under Obama. They said, this asteroid doesn't belong to anyone, that's true. But if an American miner wants to extract a kilogram of whatever kind of rare metal from this asteroid, he's going to be the owner of the product of his mining activity, which is a breach in this 1967 treaty. And now every country has to discuss that and has to figure out what kind of private property we're actually bringing into the space which was supposed to belong to everyone. So we see legal battles happening now in order to redefine what remains public good universal good, and what will be definitely private goods. And the first private goods to be evoked in the space are rare metals. Don't forget, this is for the green energy transition. That is an interesting thing to, to, to have to mind. So that's what we're ahead of. We're just starting to build a new world, which is going to get make centuries to, it's going to take centuries to see this new world arrive, where maybe we will have even more private mining activities in space in order to get these metals that we need for chatting our mobile phones and running on an electric car. I believe we have spoken uh, about the book in detail and I don't want to give anything uh, anything more than that away. I want people uh, listening to this show to read the book because it's going to change a lot of the perceptions that the media has programmed us to believe. Uh, it's going to add uh, to your knowledge base uh, about the different um, applications uh, where uh, rare metals are critical. They are not interchangeable. So mm -hmm. before we let you go, what are some of the exciting projects that you are working on currently? And you, can you can you share a few details as long as it doesn't mean putting your life in danger? <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't put my life in danger telling you that uh, I've just finished the documentary, uh, which is the adaptation of the book. Uh, this documentary will be aired uh, by Al Jazeera English. Uh, the name is going to be The Dark Side of Green Energies. Uh, check it out on the web. I don't know the airing date, but it's going to be probably certainly available on YouTube or other platforms. 
I'm writing a comics. I'm co-authoring a comics. I try to project myself in a near future, which will be 100% green. And that is just a fiction, but uh, that actually is based on plausible facts. What would be a a world 100% green without oil and coal? And it's going to be a marvelous world. And as my book tries to explain, it's going to be a very, very challenging world. So that's a comics I have uh, today um, uh, about to be published, I mean, in a couple of months. And I'm writing a second book, uh, which is going to be published next year in France on a subject that I'm not... uh, uh, willing to talk yet, but uh, that's uh, maybe a book which is going to be published in English too. So yeah, hopefully yeah, I'll be able to sort of travel to the United States anytime soon for uh, making a TEDx conference or uh, other kinds of interviews face to face with uh, American and Canadian interviewees. Hopefully, absolutely. absolutely, we would love to host you in Alberta. I mean, there's a, a huge demographic that is willing to learn, and especially as a resource-based economy, uh, mm-hmm. it would only add to the overall knowledge of the of people here. Uh, when we when we speak about research that you put into uh, the books, one is clear that you put your own skin in the game, your own life on the line in making sure that what you are writing is absolutely what you have seen with your own eyes mm-hmm. and not, not a kind of a secondhand account of reading something in the Wall mm-hmm. Street Journal or what are the three major sources of information that you yourself read and refer to in order to form your own worldview? Mm-hmm. I, I obviously read the main media, uh, the mainstream media, to be honest. I read Le Monde in France which is equivalent to the New York Times. And I also read the New York Times. I'm very much into with the Washington Post. I'm very much into uh, BBC, uh, The Guardian. I, I, I have the, uh, you know, I read the mainstream media uh, because this is the kind of uh, time, I mean, this is the time I, I give to myself in order to get informed about what's coming around. I read books. I try to read as many books as possible, which usually gives you a different perspective. On the, on the, I try also to read books as many as I can to bring me a different perspective uh, on various subjects, uh, usually a deep review. And, um, and also, uh, to be very honest, the way I try to get this different information is by speaking with experts and spending hours and hours on the phone or face-to-face with experts from all over the world, wherever I can meet them or speak with them, uh, but, you know, to bring me a new perspective. And this new perspective that I can get really stems from the ground and stems from, uh, you know, direct discussions with experts. So you don't need that. You also have to escape the bias, unavoidable bias of the media in order to get such a different perspective. Speaking of books, which are the few books that you find yourself recommending to your friends, especially those that are not from your own field of work? Sure. Um, there are two books I would really recommend to my readers. Um, the first one I would recommend, which is a very you know bestseller, it's mm-hmm. Sapiens by Harari, because this is just a masterpiece. And I love Sapiens because it's absolutely wonderfully well written. And not only is the author absolutely brilliant and he has such a knowledge of history but also he knows how to write that and he knows how to convey the reader into this huge adventure that has been history for the last 60 or 70 thousand years and that is really a book that is inspiring to me in the way the author writes and i try humbly to um to um, inspire myself from the way he conveys the reader to his ideas and to try to do the same 
the same way for my book. And there is another book that I would recommend to my readers, which is kind of an old book, whose name is The Physical Future of the Future by Michio Kaku, uh, which is a U.S. A scientist. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a wonderful book about what the future will look like or could look like in the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years, even until the end of the century, given the kind of research that we're doing right now in the laboratories. And this future world that is unveiling on different uh, economic sectors, such as medication or space exploration, energy, AI, this world coming up, possibly coming up, is absolutely such an exciting world. And uh, I would love to live for 100 more years in order to be able to see this world awaking. And that Mm. brings optimism to read this book. We will leave the links to those books in addition to your book in the show notes. What will be the best place for my listeners uh, to connect with you and interact with you uh, once they start reading the book or uh, they have completed reading your book? Sure. Actually, um, I can be found easily on Twitter. I have uh, an account. I have Guillaume Pitron. I have a LinkedIn account. I have a Facebook account. And I'm very happy to exchange with people uh, on these subjects. I have also have a website, uh, which is my first name and my last name.com. And uh, you can find on this website my email, my personal email. Mm-hmm. And you can easily send me an email. Uh, you know, I will receive it directly and happy, happy to respond. So uh, I'm very happy to engage with my readers and to discuss uh, their feelings and uh, and commentaries, criticism possibly about about my work. It's, it has been a fascinating conversation, and I I would urge my readers to to pick up the book. And even if you were to judge the book by its cover, if you look at the cover for 20 seconds, it is going to intrigue you, and it's going to give you a glimpse of the creativity that has gone into writing the book and all of the treasure trove of information that has that is inside it. Guillaume, uh, it, it, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we appreciate it. It's been a and, pleasure. And, yeah, and you can look forward to a lot of comments from my listeners in, in reading the book. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your invitation.